This is the Trip Doctor Podcast. I'm Arizona State University tourism professor Evan Jordan. If you're interested in learning more about being an intelligent traveler, head over to the website at gotripdoctor.com where you can find travel planning resources, a blog about all things travel, and a traveler personality quiz. From Napa and Sonoma to Bordeaux, Champagne, and Chianti, the wine tasting experience is pretty similar. You go to the tasting room, see their decorations, taste their wines, and maybe see some of the vineyards out the window. Many of us have had this experience before, but the winemaking process is about so much more than just the final product. How many of us have talked to the family who owns the winery, the farmer who grew the grapes, the winemaker who decided on the blend? How many of us have held the soil in our hands? My guest today is Dr. Byron Marlowe from Washington State University Tri-Cities. He's recently worked toward understanding and creating tourism experiences that go beyond what is in the wine glass to get to know the story behind the wine. All of the elements in the terroir, he argues, will tell you a lot more about how what is in your glass came to be and create a more authentic and memorable experience. Climate is a component as well. So the weather effects that one has at a certain vineyard um, as well as the culture, meaning more so just not the winemaker, but also the community around those grapes can affect the terroir as well. So, Byron, thanks for taking the time to sit down and, and talk with me. I want to start out by getting to know you as a traveler. And so can you tell us a little bit about, let's say you don't have any of your academic responsibilities and you can go on any vacation you want right now, where would you go and what would you do? Evan, great question. I would find myself in Eastern Europe in some of the origins of uh, classic wine culture. If I were to choose anywhere to go right now, more than likely, it would be countries like Moldova or Georgia, uh, uh, perhaps um, um, uh, even looking at places like um, Romania, uh, because I really do believe that those areas over the years have gone through several different struggles in order to develop their wine tourism, but yet have been really producing wonderful wine over the years. And I would like to be able to look at the tourism product, see if maybe there was uh, parts of it that really remained in a state which was pre-most modern tour tourism and tourism activities when it comes to wine. And I'd like to uh, embrace that. So that's where I'd find myself. Why wine tourism? Is that something you've always, have you always been a wine tourist or... Is that something you've happened on sort of as you've matured as a person? Or was this like, even when you were in you know, your 20s, you were like, I want to go to wine destinations? Great question, Evan. Uh, no, I didn't start out as a wine tourist. I, I, I did start out as a, um, um, a young food and beverage manager who was very wine interested after graduating from university. And when I was working in the applied side of food and beverage, I was in Phoenix, Arizona, and had an experience in my later 20s, which brought me down to the Sonoida AVA, about 45 minutes southeast of Tucson. And it was an invited experience at Dos Cabezas Winery with Todd Bostock and his family. 
and we actually participated in a um, uh, a, a quasi release slash um, uh, wine nature experience. And when I say quasi release, it, there there were definitely was the intention to be able to release the latest vintage of wines by those cabezas. But there was also the ability for us to go out into the vineyard and walk in the soil. And that's when I really became very uh, interested in wine tourism, the, the products around wine tourism, most specifically being able to go into vineyards. And what at the time I really felt and still do feel is one of the more important aesthetic experiences that one can have in wine tourism. So it was my late 20s in a lesser known wine region of the world, um, but still a very important one. Uh, and uh, I was really engaged in the idea of being in vineyards. And that started my interest in wine tourism. Shortly thereafter, I was asked to begin teaching at a culinary institute in Scottsdale. And once I realized that teaching was something that I wanted to have as part of my life, I wanted to be able to develop an understanding of the research around wine and tourism was very natural because my family had run a, a tourism newspaper in Arizona by the name of AZ Tourist News for 20 years. And I, I knew that tourism in Arizona was very important and I knew that I could bring something to the classroom environment around tourism most specifically wine tourism that would resonate with my culinary management students. Um, and so a, a little bit of an opportunist, a little bit of, a, 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 of an interest level brought me to wine tourism at that time. And that was a little over a decade ago now. That's so cool that you sort of cut your teeth in Arizona because a lot of people don't think of Arizona as a wine tourism destination, but it's really a growing thing here. And it actually even the lead singer of Tool, uh, yes. Maynard, Maynard James Keenan has a winery. I think it's in Jerome. That's uh, correct. That's where the tasting room is. And I've been there and it's a, a wonderful place and they do great tastings and make really good wine. So can you just sort of give us the fast forward? That was 10 years ago. How do you get to where you are today as a professor at Washington State University doing research and teaching about wine tourism? It started out with uh, a, a, a goal of being able to, uh, at some time and in some place, uh, definitely at the time when I made this decision, I didn't know where that was going to be, but it was to be able to um, uh, uh, have a lifestyle that would allow for myself and my young family at the time to be able to um, live um, uh, comfortably and for me to be able to have a professional outlet that would be involved in the wine business as well as in teaching. So in order to do that, I needed to develop my understanding of the academic discipline as a researcher because I felt like in order to, to meet those needs, I was going to have to find myself on a university campus. And I uh, immediately started on an MBA and then followed it up with a PhD. That MBA led me to a region of the country in um, uh, wine country, Southern Oregon, most specifically, 
that really added to my interest in wine tourism. When I completed my MBA, I started to apply for different university posts. And the post that I applied for, which I thought was the least most likely to hire me, was at Southern Oregon University. Yet they did hire me. And within the first two weeks of being hired, the top academic on the campus, as far as what we traditionally would call research productivity in, in the academic world, uh, was in my office. And I thought to myself, what is Dr. Jones in my office for? Dr. Jones happened to be one of the world's leading climatologists and had been writing on uh, climate change and its effects on the grape business as well as uh, the winery business over the last decade at the time, this was 2012, and uh, had said to me, Byron, there's a great opportunity for someone to be more involved in the applied side, but also the research side of the wine business here in Southern Oregon. And I took it to heart. I said to him, Greg, I, I really would like to work with you on this. And I knew he was willing to support me. And so through my PhD program and in 2012 through 2015, I worked very specifically at trying to develop my uh, relationship with Southern Oregon Vineyards, as well as develop my academic research specifically around tourism in wine country. And my first study was a tasting room study, went into six different tasting rooms, uh, did intercept surveying, asking uh, wine tourists in each of these separate tasting rooms what it was that they found that was going to be a benefit to them when it came to uh, being in the tasting room, whether it was um, that when I say benefit, actually what it was that they found about the wine region that was a benefit to them. So whether that was way signage or signage on how to find the wineries, how was the parking lot, what was the um, uh, orientation of the tasting room. But the most interesting result that I had was the effect of weather on the tasting experience for these wine tourists. And so I was able to develop that into a, a little bit more work that was around the experience of wine tourism. The experience economy model out of the Harvard Business School really resonated with that uh, investigation. And then further development from that was this terroir tourism that Dr. Jones, Greg, and myself were able to present at the International Terroir Conference in McMinnville, Oregon in 2015, which I just recently published. It's, it's a conceptual piece on how terroir is a component of wine tourism. And it's the first time that people uh, and investigators looked at that uh, to, the, to the best of my knowledge. What's the difference between, let's say, a wine region and terroir? Or are they interrelated? Can you just tell us what those things are and maybe like what an appellation is and how all of those things are related to each other and what they mean for wine? Of course. Yeah, I, um, I, 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 I'll go all the way back to um, where we've first seen um, sightings or, or a reference to the idea of terroir. And that was in the um, Latin literature. Um, and, and probably before it, I'm sure in Greek as well as in Phoenician and, and in other um, uh, very uh, instrumental languages as, as the development of the human culture. The idea of, of terroir, which is that soil is very specific in being able to develop 
quality products and some soils are better for certain agricultural products than others. And that over the years and over generations, wineries and vineyard owners have determined where are the most appropriate soils to develop and then finally grow and uh, turn into wine, the best grapes. And so what are they looking for in those soils? Yeah, they're they're looking for uh, typically uh, several different attributes. Um, the the first attribute that they're looking for is they're looking for a, a soil that is going to be not very nutrient rich. And so um, conceptually, the way that I like to share it with um, uh, friends, colleagues who who might not be experienced with wine, is that grapes thrive in terrible soil. Grapes uh, actually are uh, looking for uh, nothing more than the bare necessities of what they need, typically. And that's why growing up in southern Indiana, uh, as, a, 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 as one that was raised near soybeans and corn, I had a really hard uh, reality check when I started to go out to these vineyards and talk to individuals about the soil because it just looked like dust or it looked like rock. And I thought to myself, how is this possible that you're growing something when typically what I look for is black gold or what would be the richest nutrient soil, black in the sense of it being full of, of everything you would need to grow corn. It seems kind of counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. It's, it, it, it really is. And so um, this counterintuitive nature of grapes is really one of the things that I find very exciting about grapes as well. Um, um, uh, and so terroir definitely is um, going to be interconnected to um, um, uh, quality grape growing, but it's not exclusive to grapes. And I'd really like to uh, investigate this more which um, um, it can be crossed over to several different products. Um, uh, when I'm speaking specifically about soil more than anything else, I think of, about the um, uh, Hatch Chile in New Mexico, um, a very specific growing region for a certain green chile, which has a very distinctive taste and a very, uh, a, a very high level of quality when it comes to being prepared into dishes. I think of um, uh, certain varietals of apples that, that exist here in Washington, uh, most specifically, but that's just right next door to me. But I can also think about the orange tree that was in my grandma, grandmother's backyard. And if, if, it was in, if it was in a certain part of the yard, in comparison to another orange tree that was in another part of the yard, based upon its soil, based upon perhaps the, the, the climate around it, and based upon maybe even in some cases, the way that people think about it, the love and nurturing that it had, it consistently produced better in uh, oranges than the other orange tree. And um, these are the types of things that are explored a little bit more in some of the other um, social sciences than, than mine. I'm most specifically looking at terroir as a tourism product and how does it fall under wine tourism and, and or is it very separate from wine tourism? I remember sitting at the Oregon Wine Board meeting when I was uh, uh, probably two years at Southern Oregon University, 2013-14, 
And I was having a wonderful conversation with the leading scientist at Oregon State University um, from the 1970s through 80s and responsible for many of the site investigations into where these uh, now very famous Pinot Noir uh, wineries are located in um, the Willamette Valley. And we were discussing this conceptual idea that I had been starting to investigate on what would terroir tourism really look like as a product. And I still believe that we concluded that one of the great uh, activities that one would go through as a terroir tourist would um, uh, going through a, a plexiglass-like ditch, a ditch that was in some cases maybe as, as far into the earth as 20 feet and with plexiglass on each side, you would be able to walk through and view all of the different soil as well as contents that were in that soil and then be able to um, uh, taste the wines that were from your left side and from your right side after going through this. And you would, uh, in many cases, based on terroir characteristics, find a very different and distinct taste in each of those grapes, uh, in each of those wines as a product. And that would be something along the lines of how I conceptually see some terroir tourist activities. We also joked about going out into the vineyard and picking up rocks and licking them as a tourism activity. <laughs> I'm not sure if we'll get that far. But <laughs> so is it is it just soil? Is there, is there anything else that goes into terroir or is it just what's in the ground? Yeah, there definitely are two schools of thoughts on this, and I, I don't lean towards the school of thought that says that it is exclusively soil. I um, have been published uh, recently in this um, a Tourism Review International um, a recent volume in looking at um, terroir tourism, and the, the framework that's been developed is that there is going to be a component of, uh, of soil which falls under the viticulture and winemaking aspect of terroir, which is so important. If you speak to um, most about terroir, the first thing they think about on the viticulture or the growing grapes and then eventually the winemaking side is that it's exclusively about soil. There are others within that winemaking community and that grape growing community that believe that Climate is a component as well. So the weather effects that one has at a certain vineyard, um, as well as the culture, meaning more so just not the winemaker, but also the community around those grapes or those agricultural products can affect the terroir as well. So that's that, that's definitely one of the components of uh, of terroir tourism. Some again exclusively think about soil. Others look at it as inclusive of climate, and then in others see it both as soil, climate, and culture. So I just want to get something straight in my head because when you say like it's the community and it's the culture that could be a part of the terroir. Yes. Conceptually. Could that mean that if I go and taste wine in Southern Oregon or I go and taste wine in California or I go and taste wine in Italy, like not only are the soils different, but they could taste different because of where I am? Yes, that's exactly right, Evan. That's conceptually the the argument. And it would uh, not necessarily be um, uh, uh, the same experience each time in the sense of the, uh, of the terroir tasting, if, uh, for lack of a better, 
um, uh, description. That terroir tasting that you had in California in Temecula uh, could uh, be replicated by yourself um, uh, two or three times in a year. And uh, each time you may find that the terroir of the wine that you drink, same vintage, same varietal, could be different based upon the cultural component of the surroundings around the way that wine was made, as well as when and how you were consuming it and who you were consuming it with, most importantly. Okay, so we have terroir, and it's composed of all these different things, depending on who you ask, I suppose. But how is that different than, let's say, an appellation? So there are certain areas that... Something can only be called champagne if it's grown in the champagne region. Or Correct. something can only be called a Bordeaux if it's grown in Bordeaux. So what is the difference between an Appalachian and terroir? Yes. Uh, you know, you are using the right word for the United States. We, we uh, The American Viticulture Area, or AVA, is an Appalachian designated by the United States government. And it is um, created through petition to the government um, based upon what we uh, consider to be consistency in a region. It doesn't have to be 100% soil consistent. So if you have a consistent um, uh, soil in one area of an AVA that's used Napa Valley, um, uh, it could be that it's high in minerals in the south part of the Appalachian, but in the northern part of the Appalachian, it um, is a more robust soil. And that doesn't mean that it's still not in the same Appalachian. There could be different terroir within that Appalachian based upon the differences in the soils, based upon, in some cases, as we've shared, the difference in climate, depending on who you speak with. And then again, in some cases, depending on the differences in culture between that northern part of the Appalachian in Calistoga and the southern part of the Appalachian down towards Napa. And is that different in other countries? You said that's just the U.S. What about other places? No, in fact, the U.S. has adopted a system that has originated in um, uh, France uh, uh, France originated a, a, a geo or what we call a, a geo identifier for its wine and its uh, DOCs. Um, I believe in the 1930s is when that came about. And so those designations are just like ours. They're geographic boundaries that are distinctive to a, a growing region. And they have to be within that growing, the grapes have to be grown within that growing region in order to be labeled that type of a, uh, of a wine. So in uh, Italy, France, Germany, um, they're, they're, in fact, in, in almost all regions, they've adopted this same geo-identification regulation, which allows for um, two things. It allows for a control of quality, and it also allows for a marketing component to be added in to uh, produce value for the product in its in-state when it finally is retailed. That's really interesting to me that it's not it's it's a quality control, but also a marketing tool because we can say if I'm part of this appellation, you know, you know, you're going to get a good product. It's also about land value too. Uh, the um, uh, a byproduct of this is that 
um, uh, land values within these select regions because um, although the largest AVA in the United States of America is the Ohio River um, uh, AVA, uh, Ohio Valley AVA, which um, many people don't know. Cincinnati was actually the um, uh, the wine merchant or, or the, the wine business hub of the United States of America um, as w in the beginnings of the, of the wine culture as we know it here in the United States. The Ohio re uh, region, Ohio Valley AVA is the largest, uh, but yet on a per acre um, uh, basis, it's one of the least most valuable regions to purchase grape growing and or wine growing acreage. So they've been able to really also produce another byproduct, which is the uh, part of the wine business for these individuals, the real estate that they owned. So how many of those, do you, if you know off the top of your head, how many of those regions do we have in the United States? Is like, is there almost one in every state or is it like there's multiple in every state? You can you can find a wine growing region in every state of the United States of America at this point. Even Alaska? Even in Alaska. That's I, that is baffling to me. Yes. And 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 one in Hawaii as well. I um I I've not visited but um uh, it is in Maui. The the concept that you're talking about terroir tourism, is it a part of wine tourism or is wine tourism a part of terroir tourism? Like, how do you see it being different or the same? I've gone back and forth on this. I, I, I suppose this will be my lifelong um, uh, question, uh, Evan. I haven't concluded one way or the other at this point, uh, in other words. I, um, uh, I most recently have, uh, have investigated um, uh, looking at how terroir is a component of wine tourism as opposed to wine tourism being a component of terroir tourism. I, um, uh, I believe that because if there were such a thing as a product called corn tourism or a product out there called salmon tourism or a product out there called avocado tourism, that terroir tourism would fall within each of those as well. We just happen to have a product out there called wine tourism and I believe that terroir is a component of wine tourism, just like it would be a component of those other tourism um, uh, products as well, if we were to ever classify them as such. So is there anybody out there? It sounds like this is a fairly new concept because your research is, is some of the cutting edge information on this. Are there any organizations out there providing terroir tourism experiences or is this something that people are going to have to kind of figure out on their own? You know, there are people who are offering terroir-like tourism experiences, as well as it's been defined for uh, for them to understand, as well as for myself to understand. I um, uh, am uh, personally uh, in, in touch with, uh, I would say, at least three, maybe even six wine tour operators that are offering more terroir-like experiences. And uh, the, uh, the regions who have these terroir experiences also need to play a part in that, um, in that tour as well because of that cultural component. I, uh, I see that uh, this could perhaps be a, a very um, uh, unique experience for those that are interested in wine tourism. And I uh, believe that a, we will see a 
a growing trend in um, in this uh, type of terroir tourism activity as more and more people are looking for these authentic experiences. If, in fact, someone is really interested in an authentic, unique experience, I think terroir tourism within wine tourism is going to provide them with a, um, a product that they will uh, find memorable. Let's say somebody's interested. Let's say somebody has been a wine tourist before or they want to become a wine tourist and they want to go to Napa or the Willamette Valley or any of the other Appalachians in the U.S. or around the world. What are the things that they can do besides tasting wine? Because everybody's going to go and they're going to drink wine. That's that's a big part of wine tourism. And they're going to check out different types of grapes and they're going to probably visit a tasting room. How do you go beyond that to become a more of a terroir tourist? I would start with uh, getting to know the winemaker or the um, uh, the family that is responsible for the grape growing. Uh, also, uh, to include the farmers, uh, those responsible for growing the grapes, and having uh, very um, uh, you know very honest uh, conversations with them about what it's like to uh, be a farmer or what it's like to be a winemaker, what it's like to be a, an owner of a vineyard. I think that uh, when you are looking at uh, these types of destinations that offer more family-owned uh, uh, traditional wineries to the region, uh, meaning that they are um, uh, producing wine which is uh, very traditional to the region, adds to this as as well um, an example could be in spain uh, when when one visits rioja if you had a, an opportunity as a wine tourist or or one of the ways you could really make sure that you were having a terroir experience is if a tour operator would were to suggest winery a which is corporate which is experimenting with um, new varietals as opposed to option B, which um, uh, was 12 generations of, of family uh, consistently growing the same varietals um, over, those, uh, over those generations, um, uh, I would recommend for a Tewa experience option B. And that, uh, that would be um, uh, based upon being able to not just drink the wine, as you've suggested uh, brilliantly. That's just one activity that one can take on when they're wine when they're wine touring. But they would be able to then learn more about the history, the soil, the varietals in a more authentic nature than if they were going to the corporate um, winery where they were experimenting with new varietals in that region. So it sounds like it's it's taking the wine tourism experience and expanding it, making it more meaningful and potentially making it more authentic. Yes, that's uh, that, that's a component of it. I believe that the, uh, the, the more authentic the experience, the opportunity for terroir to, and, and again, as you've said it, it's, it's a pretty big, um, um, uh, uh, big target. Um, uh, although we've, we've really tried to help define it in, in different uh, scientific circles um, there's still a lot of, uh, of holistic idea around uh, terroir, but the more authenticity that's involved, the more the uh, terroir experience can show itself. 
And so do you think that's a way for people to learn about the soil as well? Because that's kind of where we started our conversation, as you said, you know, if you could have a cut 20 feet down with plexiglass on both sides, then you'd really get to know the terroir. How do people, short of doing that, which it sounds like, is, is anybody actually doing that? No, none that I know of. <laughs> I, I've, I've visited certain things that are close, but never that extreme. So short of having something like that, how do people get to know the soil, which is another major component? It would be a, it would be definitely um, an experience that they would have to go out into the vineyard to be able to uh, witness with a farmer more than likely. I would uh, really believe that if you were going to any wine region in the world, um, uh, that you would be able to speak to the farmer and they could be able to share with you the different attributes of the soil on that site. And it may be that the soil is consistent on the site, so there's not going to be a big variation on the uh, vineyard or on the farm. But it may be that the farm does have several different terroirs within it, and that would be by the farmer being able to share with you that experience of going out, looking at the soil, examining the soil, hearing the story of the soil, perhaps the story of generations who've been farming that soil. I believe that would be a way that um, a, a wine tourist could have a, uh, an experience in terroir around the lines of what I've described. It sounds like it's going like even beyond the farm to table movement that we've seen in the restaurant industry, because even in that movement, it's like, you know where your food came from, but you don't go talk to them. But seems like with terroir, that's kind of a component of it. Like you need to go there and talk to those people and get to know their history and experience with the, the land and, and soil and grapes. I, I, I'm glad that you've drawn that conclusion, Evan. It's something that I, I firmly believe in as well. Terroir is, a, um, uh, is, is, is shared best through story and through being able to um, uh, visit these destinations for uh, wineries and vineyards uh, in their environment, which is uh, geographically not replicated anywhere else. If I'm in Moldova, I will be in Moldova. The vineyard cannot be picked up and replicated in Massachusetts. And so in order to be able to have that terroir experience, I need to be in Moldova. And it's kind of cool that you can get this anywhere. Like it's not just California. It's Ohio or Virginia or New York or Michigan or Arizona. It's not like you have to fly across the country for this. You can get it anywhere. I, uh, I think that that's one of the things that keeps me going with this is that I really do believe terroir as, uh, uh, as far as um, uh, the way that I've uh, been able to investigate it scientifically exists everywhere. And um, uh, that's a, a, a very um, uh, exciting idea um, and one that uh, I, I hope to share with others. Well, Byron, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. This has been uh, just a fascinating conversation to learn about terroir. And, you know, I thought I had a good understanding of it before, but I really now feel like I was pretty shallow in my understanding. And you've really provided a lot of awesome information to, to help myself and our listeners be better wine tourists. Thank you so much, Evan. I appreciate the opportunity. And I, I really look forward to being able to 
develop uh, an understanding uh, myself a little bit more. The, the job is never done here, but thank you for um, um, uh, the opportunity and I appreciate it. Thank you.